Story 7 Brief Exercises in Mindfulness by Calvin Baker One morning, after waking from an anxious dream, Harry Sampson heard his roommate, Dean, at the door of their apartment, squabbling with a bill collector. I already told you, he doesn't live here anymore, Dean insisted with rising annoyance as the overweight stranger stared at him implacably from the other side of the doorway. Well, if you do happen to see him, let him know there's a summons out for him to appear in court. The bill collector's round face remained perfectly serene but his voice betrayed his disbelief that the previous tenant had moved away without a trace. He was used to hostility. Do I even look like I know anyone named Rakeen? Dean asked too loudly, turning the palms of his hands skyward with exaggerated insouciance. The collection agent sized up Dean's clean-cut, all-American look, Dean exuded the sense of someone who had never missed a payment, failed to remember an appointment, or had a bad night's sleep his entire life. But the man knew appearances lied as much as words, and over time had found actions often held multiple meanings. Even eyes were not always readable. He prided himself on being, what was the word he had heard, empirical, and remaining professional, if you could call chasing people down for money a profession. He pressed a copy of the summons into Dean's hand. Just in case you do. I feel unclean, Dean reported to the heir of the apartment after closing the door. He walked the few steps into the kitchen and raised the lid on the stainless steel trash can with the foot pedal. Hey, you can't throw that out, Harry protested. The guy's in trouble. Not my problem, he doesn't pay his bills. Here, you take it if you care so much. Harry claimed the summons hovering over the mouth of the trash can and settled it in a pile nestled on a shelf in the cabinet next to the refrigerator, where he had a foot-high stack of Rakeen's accumulated mail. Maybe I should just open it and see if there's a phone number for him somewhere. Opening someone else's mail is a criminal offense, Dean protested. Besides, I bet the guy doesn't even have a phone, or if he does, he doesn't answer it. He pointed to a red-lined envelope from the mobile company tucked into the stack with a bunch of other red-lined envelopes that told in a glance the story of a man drowning. Why else would they send someone here? We don't know what his story is, insisted Harry, who remembered hearing someone on television once saying, everyone has a story. And if we could only open ourselves to listen, really listen to the stories of others, how it would trigger the most profound sense of empathy, and how this was what all the dead religions and dead saints taught, and that it was the key to human connection, to everything, really. He repeated what he remembered of this to Dean. Dean chortled loudly, reeling his head back like a racehorse choking on dust. Harry... For someone so intelligent, you're the biggest fucking moron I know, Dean spat out. If it's that simple, why doesn't everyone just goddamn listen and trigger this allegedly profound cure to all our goddamn problems? Idiot. Dean could be cynical like that. The guy could be dead for all we know. Maybe he decided to take a dive off the fire escape because of all the pressure. A straight dive, like the kind they teach you when you're a kid. Simple and perfect. It's what I'd do if I couldn't do something as basic as pay my bills or feed my family. 
Don't be morbid, Dean, Harry said, going into the bathroom to shower and take his antidepressants before heading out to meet friends. What are you so angry about? Anyway, they're not your bills. If everyone who owed money offed themselves, 80% of the country would be dead. It's not morbid, and I'm not angry about anything, Dean said to the closing white plastic door, which had been molded to resemble the softly petaled striations of rosewood. Despite such handsome design, it still didn't insulate sound between the rooms, failing in one of the primary tasks of basic dornness, as Dean once observed. Because things like that don't happen to people like us. If they did, though, that would be the rational solution. On the other side of the door, Harry's chest clenched with anxiety at Dean's cavalier mention of suicide. In the interior hall, Dean listened in disgust to the sounds of Harry's brushing, gargling, rinsing, flushing, before turning back to the kitchen, which was on the other side of the bathroom wall. Harry heard him open the refrigerator and chug the last drops from their communal water pitcher before leaving the apartment. Harry finished getting dressed as he tried to understand why he still lived with Dean. They had been roommates since sophomore year at Regents. He hated change more than he was bothered by Dean drinking from the pitcher or any of the other grating things Dean did. He lived with Dean out of habit, he decided. Harry started telling himself, as he left for class, he endured Dean the way you endure a bad Thanksgiving dinner, until he forced himself to remember that Dean deserved empathy too. When he returned home, Harry found Dean splayed across the sofa in the late afternoon light, entertaining friends from college. It was a scene he had endured nearly every week of living with Dean, as though Dean were afraid to be alone, or none of his friends had apartments they were willing to wreck every weekend. The television projected old episodes of Game of Thrones, as Dean, Kyle, and Judy, who had all been on the swim team together, passed a bong lazily among them, adding commentary to the action on the TV and trashing everyone they knew from Regents for being such a competitive asshole. Kyle and Judy had been together since he first met either of them, which was the same time he had met Dean. The housing office randomly assigned them to live together after they both turned in their housing forms late at the end of freshman year. In all that time, he had never known Dean to be in a relationship, not a real one. As Harry scavenged the cupboards, trying to decide whether to cook or order in, he heard Dean and Kyle singing along to Migos, including whenever the rappers used the N-word. He cringed every time he heard them say it, before calling out to the other room that you weren't supposed to say the N-word even if you were repeating a black person saying the N-word. Harry was head dancing to the beat while mentally trying to block out the N-word when Judy entered the kitchen for a glass of water. Cotton mouth, he asked. Harry didn't smoke or consume mood-altering substances of any kind since freshman year after discovering how much the effects disagreed with him. Finding the water pitcher in the refrigerator desperately empty, Judy shrugged as she filled her glass from the tap. After quenching her thirst, she let the water from the tap stream into the top of the pitcher, watching the slow trickle with complete absorption. Judy, it's just water, Harry said. Not just water, Harry. She turned her glassy eyes up from the pitcher. 
It's a record of everything in the environment, everything in the city, in this moment in time. It's not just water, it's history, Harry. Do you know there are 18 different types of water, depending on the isotopes of hydrogen and oxygen? Not to mention the trace elements that tell you where it came from, which ocean or river or pond or even puddle. Proteum, which we drink in seven different forms, and deuterium, that's the stuff they use in nuclear reactors, are only the most common. Judy, how do you know this? He asked absentmindedly. Judy could be a know-it-all. And he had to try extra hard sometimes to stay in the moment when she started talking, which he did as he decided to order from the sushi restaurant that had just opened on Nostrand. When he walked past on the way to the train station, he wondered why it was always empty. Was it because it was new or because it was bad? Or perhaps people in their neighborhood didn't eat sushi, or maybe they always ordered in like him. His mind was starting to race when he remembered to be mindful, to stay in the moment. His mind raced a lot, and he reminded himself to be mindful a lot. He was usually successful enough that he couldn't remember his last panic attack. Harry, I'm a swimmer. I live for water. Listen, Harry, can I ask you something? Judy pointed to the stack of Rakeen's correspondence that was still on the kitchen counter from earlier in the day. Sure, Judy. He always liked the way she said his name, like she was giving him all her attention. Why don't you open your mail? Are you depressed or something? It's not my mail. It's the guy who used to live here. I don't know how to reach him, so I'm saving it in case he ever comes by to get it. It seems like the decent thing to do. Judy started flipping through the envelopes on the counter. Oh, that's really nice of you, Harry. I sometimes wish some of your niceness would rub off on Dean. Harry hated it when girls called him nice, especially pretty girls. It meant they found him undateable. He wondered briefly if he could learn to be an asshole, but decided it was something you learned when you were a kid, like playing piano well or speaking Spanish without an accent, both of which he did. Here, the number is right there. Judy pointed to the black bars running along the face of a package. Where? Harry looked blankly at the random series of horizontal black bars. It's just a UPC code. Actually, a UPC is a universal product code. This is an IMB, Intelligent Mail Barcode, Judy explained. It's a system containing a great deal of information. That's why they always tell you to rip the labels off before you throw anything out. If you knew how much information was in one of these codes, right out in the open, you'd be paranoid. Is that what you learned working in the mailroom? Harry mocked. Judy was interning for a talent agency, and most of her job consisted of sorting and delivering the partner's mail until she worked her way up, as she always reminded them. Partially. His phone number is 917-555-0077. How can you read that without a scanner? He couldn't imagine how even Judy, who was so obsessive about things, learned to decipher a barcode. Because it's printed right there. She traced a series of numbers in microscopic font before returning the package to the counter, the water pitcher to the refrigerator, and herself to the sofa. You know, you guys should really change the filter in that thing once in a while. As she went back to the living room, 
Harry looked at the number that had been staring at him all along, feeling foolish he didn't know was there, and reproaching himself for not being more mindful. Underestimating Judy as much as he did just because she was one of Dean's friends who always talked about how they were one day going to run the universe while always being high on his couch whenever he came home. That's what happens when you judge everybody all the goddamn time, including yourself, he muttered under his breath. You miss things staring you in the face. Dean returned home unusually late Monday and was still preoccupied with his day when he inserted the key in the front door at 10 o'clock that night, only to have the knob turn from the inside, knocking him temporarily off balance from the momentum. As he was about to enter, a statuesque, dark-skinned woman in a fitted blue dress brushed past him. Hi, you must be Harry's roommate, she said, stopping to introduce herself. Dean, he introduced himself with a confident handshake, masking how unnerved he was to see Harry had scored such an attractive date. Rakeen, she replied. Thank you for keeping my mail. You're Rakeen? Dean stared at her uncomfortably long before catching himself. It's just, I thought Rakeen was a guy. Amazing how they've transformed the apartment. She waved goodbye, lightly, slipping down the stairs familiarly instead of waiting for the lumbering old elevator. Dean didn't know which was more unexpected, her looks or how normal she seemed. Not like his idea of a Rakeen at all. Holy shit, he called out to Harry, walking through the apartment to his bedroom. That's Rakeen? She's hella fine for a black girl. Otherwise, Jesus H. Christ, that's hella wrong, Harry snapped, taking the chance to dig at Dean's annoying San Francisco slang, which he had picked up from Kyle along with his attitude. You can't go around talking like that, Dean. He had taken a feminism class as part of his humanities requirement in college, and it had completely changed the way he saw things. He understood standing by silently was the same as actively endorsing. It felt good to say something and not be part of the problem. How would you feel if it was you? You're right, Dean cut him off angrily, going into the bathroom and slamming the door behind him as his last words met Harry's in the empty living room. I'd still do her. Harry tried to breathe, but couldn't. Instead of the panic that usually welled up when his emotions overflowed, he found anger. You're a complete and utter jackass. I used to think, oh, it's just Dean. He's harmless, or he was never taught better, or who am I to judge him? But you're the biggest jerk I know. Fuck you, Harry. I say whatever I want to say in the sanctity of my own home. That's the point of privacy. I am in private, and in private, I do what I want, say what I want, so long as it doesn't harm anyone. It does harm people, Harry said. It harms me. It harms her. It harms you. What the hell do you have to do with it? You're not a fucking saint, Harry. Oh, I get it, Dean said abruptly. You want to fuck her. It makes me uncomfortable when you say shit like that, Harry reddened. 
So what the fuck makes you think anyone has the right to comfort, you smug prick? Dean held his hands in air quotes around the word comfort, tense enough to strangle it before withdrawing a finger on either hand, flipping his wrists, and throwing his forearms in a short, violent burst to emphasize the double bird he just shot at Harry. You think I'm comfortable, Harry? No, Dean. I think you're the most miserable son of a bitch I know. Each retreated to his respective room, like boxers after the bell or the passengers of a subway car when a homeless person is sleeping across three seats. They remained in their separate corners of the apartment for the remainder of the week, each going carefully about his business, avoiding the other. Silence charged the air, and their mutual avoidance altered their normal rhythms of life. They no longer ran into each other in the kitchen at mealtimes, in the living room when they relaxed, or in spare moments of boredom when the human thing to do would be to engage in chat, gossip, share interests, even if, as they often did, in mutual antipathy. Rakeen walked down Pacific through the streets she had traced every day of her life until 13 weeks ago. They were as familiar to her as her own nervous system and she felt her body relax. It released the stress of moving, of seeing new people in her old apartment, of the new environment she found herself in that she had not even realized she was carrying until she felt the ease with which she inhabited the streets she had been raised in. She felt herself again. Her sense of ease was upended by the subtle differences she began to notice when she turned onto Nostrand. Details, she thought, the newcomers would never see because of the way they walked through the streets without looking at anyone, or at least not at the people they were slowly drowning, like water seeping into a cave. There was a fancy restaurant on the corner near Atlantic filled with people who looked like they had come from Manhattan. White faces streaming up from the subway with their eyes averted. Even a handful of commuters on bicycles, like on the other side of the park, what struck her most, though, was the way the apartment had been renovated. The busted old walls smoothed over, repairing the water damage from where the upstairs neighbor's bathroom always flooded and rained through yellowed plaster. The old kitchen cabinets and appliances replaced with sleek new ones. And the entrance lights now actually working, because the hundred-year-old electrical wiring had finally been repaired. Only the windows and floors were the same. She wondered if the new tenants had to call the landlord every day for months to have the exterminator sent, or whether the management company sent someone over automatically so the new people would be happy. Everything in the air that had felt soothing turned sour as she ran to catch the bus quickly approaching on the other side of the avenue. At first, she had looked at the changes in the neighborhood like one of those spot-the-difference cartoons in the Sunday paper she looked at when she was a girl. But as she sat down behind the driver, she understood the real transformation in the picture. In one panel, you were there. And in the next, you were gone. By the time she transferred to the subway, she felt tired and was grateful for an open seat. But as the train sped toward the ocean, she wondered if eventually she would be pushed out into the sea. To distract herself, she began thumbing through the old mail weighing down her purse and decided against opening it. It was nothing but bills she couldn't pay. 
Her salary barely let her pay the rent where they lived now. Forget about the back rent she was being sued for. Forget about the past due and all the other bills she had inherited when her mother switched everything over to Raheen's name because they had closed all the accounts in her mother's. It's going to be your apartment one day anyway, she had said, to hide her shame. When she descended the stairs at Coney Island, she felt her nervous system tense as she navigated past all the strange shops and foreign faces, her nostrils picking up the smell of trash, and in the distance, the salt of the ocean, trying to imagine her future and map a way to pay all those delinquent bills. She was on the edge of Brooklyn, and if she didn't figure something out soon, she knew there was no place left to go but fall off the world. Harry returned from yoga Saturday afternoon to the familiar sound of the television blaring in the living room and to the wafting odor of marijuana in the hall. He knew Dean and his friends had once again commandeered the house for the weekend. He made the quick decision to act as though nothing had happened, even though he knew Dean had inevitably reported the details of their fight, as he and Dean had had disagreements before. He was relieved to find the living room empty when he entered. Seeing that he had the apartment to himself, Harry searched the room for the remote to turn off the television, opened the windows to air the place out, and sank down on the sagging beige sofa to enjoy the meditative afterglow of Shavasana. As he stared into the darkness behind his eyelids, he heard Dean's bedroom door open and looked up to see Dean and Judy standing across the room. Can we talk? Dean asked. What's up? Harry pulled himself upright as Dean sat down in the mismatched upholstered chair on the other side of the coffee table, and Judy stood behind him. I know, I'm sorry about Monday, Harry said with real remorse. He had let his emotions get out of check and regretted calling Dean the most miserable son of a bitch he knew, which he thought it best not to repeat. Forget it, Dean washed the air with his hand. Friends fight sometimes. I know, but I didn't mean the things I said. Don't worry about it, listen. Dean looked at him searchingly, then decided to simply be direct. I think you should move out. Move out? Harry was stunned. I thought you said you wanted to put the fight behind us. It's not that, Dean assured him. Judy and I are moving in together. What? I know how it looks, but... It just happened, Judy said. Harry, Dean and I are in love. What about Kyle? Dean chortled, survival of the fittest. Dean, you don't need to say things like that, Judy said softly. It's done, now stop it, please. Harry thought about how he might have expected something like this from Dean, but he looked at Judy incredulously, before remembering to smooth any appearance of judgment from his eyes. When? How? It just felt right, Judy said. Kyle and I grew apart until I couldn't imagine spending the rest of our lives together. It may have looked different from the outside, the way some things look right on paper, but inside, I knew better. I didn't feel it. She and Dean had been going out for months, which was why Dean came home late so often. After knowing each other so long, they both thought moving in together was the next logical step. 
Harry had always thought of Judy as the kind of woman who would be married early. She was serious and confident about herself. He hadn't expected Dean to ever make a commitment. The words Dean and love did not rest easily in the same sentence. Kyle must have been crushed. In a panic, he stopped thinking about Kyle or Dean or Judy and thought about himself. Where would he move? Why should I be the one to move out? You can move into Judy's place. Because I found this place? And you know Judy lives in a studio, Dean snapped. Harry, why don't you take over the lease there, Judy offered, trying to be helpful. I can't afford that, Harry argued. Judy couldn't afford it either. Her parents helped with the rent. There was no way he was going to ask his own parents for help with his rent. He was a man. He felt his breathing quicken and tried to still it with the pranayama exercises he'd learned before giving up and going to the bathroom to find his anxiety medicine. Harry felt out of place and apprehensive whenever he came home after that conversation. He never knew whether it would be just Dean in the apartment, pretending nothing had happened, or Dean and Judy cooking, having sex, or doing other couple things you could hear. She hadn't moved in, not officially, but already the changes were apparent as he watched himself being displaced. Instead of the smell of weed on Saturday mornings when he returned from looking at apartments, he was greeted by the smell of brunch being made and the sound of the television broadcasting cooking shows in the other room. Dean even made the effort to clean the kitchen and bathroom, scrubbing the black gunk from the sinks after determining it was dirt and not mold. He ordered a bulk shipment of filters for the water pitcher, stopped smoking, and deleted the dating apps on his phone. Harry was amazed to see how easily Dean seemed to change. Everything he had read about how people transformed their lives made the point of underscoring how hard it was, the year-over-year -year effort. But for Dean, it seemed as simple as falling in love. Harry was equally amazed by how seamlessly he accepted it, moving from thinking of Judy and Kyle to thinking of Dean and Judy. He supposed it must have been there all along, and he had simply missed the signs. His only consolation for being so blind was thinking Kyle must have too. The neighborhood seemed more expensive than he remembered. Each apartment he looked at seemed more out of reach and depressing than the last. Even the interior studio, filled with the smell of grease from the Chinese joint in front and trash from the courtyard, was unaffordable on Harry's salary as a fifth-grade math teacher. After viewing it, he popped an anxiety pill into his mouth, dry swallowing without waiting for his saliva to pool. He never day drank, on account of his grandfather, whom he didn't remember, and Uncle Chad, whom he did. But as he headed toward the subway, he decided to walk into a dim bar, take a seat near the window, and order a pint of Brooklyn lager, which was the happy hour special, and considering his circumstances, all he could afford. Since all he could afford was happy hour in a dive bar, he asked for a bourbon to go with the beer. He was going to have to move back in with his parents. That deserved a drink. He decided it might as well be a real one. As his thoughts started to lap darkly in the gloomy room, he reminded himself to try to be grateful for the fact that he could move back home, because not everyone had parents who would be happy to have them. He drained his whiskey, sipped the beer, 
until he could see the light from outside through the bottom of the glass, then ordered another day drink. It tasted like failure. Dean came home to find Harry sitting on the sofa in his underwear, shit-faced and texting furiously. That, he thought to himself, waving briefly before heading to his bedroom, is not good. Dean prided himself on having more self-control than Harry, who had to take medication and classes between trips to a therapist simply to be a functioning person in the world. He shook his head, knowing that none of his friend's yoga classes or therapists had ever taught him that a half-empty six-pack, an open bottle of Ativan, plus sitting alone at 10 o'clock in the evening with a brightly illuminated cell phone, was the first stage of regret. Poor Harry, Dean thought. He's turned into a loser. Dean's boss had been fired and he had a meeting scheduled with his boss's boss the next morning to discuss taking over the job as product manager. Startup culture was evolve or die, so his manager's firing wasn't exactly a failure. He would do fine as a consultant or manager at an old growth company. He just hadn't evolved fast enough for a tech firm. Dean wished he had something nice to say to Harry, time to sit with him a while, patience to build him back up, and empathy to learn what was on his shit-faced mind. Hopefully, he had found a new place and was celebrating, because in truth, Dean was sick of Harry, sick of his lectures, sick of him slacking through life while thinking he was better than other people. They had been thrown together randomly, and he realized how little agency he had taken in that part of his life, assuming one roommate was the same as any other. It's not that he disliked him, Dean told himself, turning on his computer to research how much his boss had been paid and what similar positions paid elsewhere so he'd be prepared for the morning conversation. It's simply that Harry wasn't evolving, and he was. Dean was right. Harry had betrayed himself. In one of his text threads, he was trying to convince his mother of his prospects in the city and alleviate her concern that he, in her words, seemed unsteady. Never been better, he replied. Harry, are you in a healthy place? Mrs. Sampson wanted to know. In her Westport bedroom, Mrs. Sampson wondered whether she should get in the car and drive down to the city, or whether that would only make both of them feel foolish. He's a college graduate and a grown man, she tried to tell herself, which is what her husband had said after taking the phone to look at the stream of texts from their son. Well... What do you think is wrong with him? Mr. Sampson was the kind of attorney who prided himself on understanding the nuanced motivations of human behavior and language. He took the phone again, scrutinized the back and forth bursts silently for a moment, and returned the phone to his wife. I think, he said, kissing Mrs. Sampson on the forehead, then turning over on his side of the bed to go to sleep. Our little Harry has been drinking. This alarmed Mrs. Sampson all the more. She had read carefully all the side effects of Ativan when he was originally prescribed it junior year as the PSATs approached. Drinking was strongly contraindicated. Harry, she typed, have you been drinking? Are you drunk, Harry? Are you alone? The thought of him drunk saddened her. Well, shouldn't we do something? She said to Mr. Sampson. We're not just going to go to sleep, are we? 
Harry shouldn't be home alone drinking. We will talk to him about it next time we see him, said Mr. Sampson. Harry's no idiot. Harry ignored his mother's questions. He was an adult and could do what he wanted, which at this exact moment was taking a photograph of his flaccid phallus and sharing it using the connective wizardry of his smartphone, telling himself it was something guys like Dean did all the time. Besides, he was horny. Immediately after he tapped the send button, he felt a sobering sense of mortification flood through his body. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. I'm truly sorry, he tapped. It's not like me. I don't know WTF just happened. He awoke at 6 a.m., splayed across the sofa, and immediately picked up his phone. He was anxious that the text had gone unanswered. He typed another apology, appalled he had done such a thing, and wondering whether he had ruined his entire life. Thinking of all the effort he had put into getting into Regents, into being good at things, including trying to be a good person, and the allegedly bright future ahead of him. He feared he had ruined his life, and he feared perhaps it was an action he deserved to be ruined for committing. He saw the disappointment on his mother's face and heard his father's voice in his head telling him, sure, maybe a Samson here and there like to have a few more than he should. My brother Chad had even gotten a DUI before he pulled himself straight. But this was all new territory, since, so far as he knew, no man on either side of the family had ever before sent a photograph of a penis, whether his own or that of someone else, to a woman he did not know over the internet. He could still hear his parents' squinting rumination on what had become of him as he called in sick to work. Too agitated to fall back asleep, Harry, who had gotten a perfect score on the verbal section of his GRE the summer before, took another Ativan and exchanged the sofa for his bed, where he pulled the covers over his head, thinking of all the synonyms he knew for shame. There were nicer ways to put it, which his manager did, but what the conversation amounted to was that Dean was fired from his job. The company wasn't making its numbers, and the founders needed to cut the burn rate in order to raise a new round from investors without diluting themselves. Dean still had his stock options, of course, and a month's severance, plus unemployment, but wasn't from money like everyone else at Regents. He had never been fired before, never failed, never was relegated to the pile of people who failed at basic beingness. He left the office in the Flatiron Building, no longer his office, and started walking through the city without direction for the first time in his life. Watching all the people who belonged, who went about their business with a sense of purpose. With your credentials and network and the experience you've gained here, you'll have a new job by the end of the week, his old boss's boss had told him, not even bothering to try to make it sound like more than a platitude. What was he even thinking? Was Dean supposed to tell everyone he knew he'd been fired? He was Dean Lee, the smartest boy in New York City since he took his first gifted and talented exam when he was three years old. Dean, who had graduated summa from Regents, had been a good enough diver to win an invitation to the Olympic trials. If he had put more hours in at the pool than the library, who knows? He had his priorities. Dean did not fail, and everyone knew that. He wondered what he'd done wrong. He hadn't done anything wrong. He must have done something wrong. 
He walked the streets of the city, oscillating between rage at the world and rage at himself. Raquin stood in the doorway of the apartment, waiting for Harry to bring her mail. She had refused his invitation to go in. I don't think that's necessary, she said, enunciating each word with such exquisite precision, each syllable was a blade, knifing his conscience. Harry tried again to apologize for his stupidity as she looked at him with the silence of an unanswered text. It looked important. Harry returned from the kitchen and handed Raquin the envelope that had turned up in his mailbox earlier that day. She was wearing her work clothes, which was a cashier's matching uniform, and looked like a regular person you interact with a dozen times a day. A check or something, and I just thought, you just thought I could use the money, Raquin shot back. Well, I can use the money, because all you frat boys keep moving to Brooklyn, driving up the rent. The landlords see a bunch of white faces, then fall over themselves to fix everything so the frat boys will stay. I'm not a frat boy, Harry protested. I can't even afford the rent around here, so I know how it feels. You know how what feels, Raquin twisted her face. Tell me how it feels, since you know. Harry was at a loss for words. He felt he deserved whatever she said about him, and probably worse. He couldn't stand frat boys and didn't want to gentrify the neighborhood. He knew she was right. Harry realized he had even helped to price himself out. And he had sent a dick pic, so he was guilty of whatever she had to say about him. As the deluge of thoughts tumbled around his head, he stopped thinking of his shame for a moment. Instead, he thought about the observer effect. How just by trying to measure something, you changed the state of the system. How you were part of the system without even knowing it. Harry wondered what would happen if he asked how she felt. But his shame returned, and with it fear that he would not know how to respond if she did. Listen, Raquin, my roommate kicked me out so his girlfriend could move in, and I got depressed and went day drinking, and then ate a bunch of my anxiety medicine. I'm sorry, that wasn't me. Do you know how it feels to have someone shove their dick in your face? She ignored his excuse. The fucked up thing is you learn not to even see it. You know what that means? When you get so used to something fucked up, you just ignore it? She shook her head slightly, deciding it wasn't worth it to get herself worked up. She had more important things on her mind. As Harry wondered whether Raquin hated him or not, she stared at him like a stone mask. The longer he looked, the more the mask turned to mirror, reflecting his shame and fear, which in turn began to morph into anger. He may not deserve to have his apology accepted, but he had tried, and now she was berating him. The two of them stared at each other defiantly a moment as the elevator opened and Dean and Judy emerged. Raquin called for them to hold it for her, looking straight ahead as the doors closed. Is it raining out? Harry asked when he noticed Dean was dripping wet. Dean ignored Harry and headed for his room to change. Dean was in an accident, Judy replied. What kind of accident? Judy wondered whether to tell Harry what had happened or not. I think he tried to kill himself, Harry. What? Harry asked, 
forgetting for the moment the exchange that had just taken place. He hasn't told me everything, but apparently he jumped off one of the piers down near the seaport and was fished out by one of those police patrol boats. They took him to Bellevue for observation, then arrested him. Dean listened to them from his room. In the hospital, he had thought about whom to call after they told him he couldn't be released unless someone came for him. He'd first thought of his parents, but knew the distress and shame they would feel that their perfect son had proven weak. If he had succeeded, they would have felt sadness and heartbreak, but this was his second failure in a day, and they would worry it portended a lifetime of failure. He had thought about Harry. He knew Harry wouldn't refuse, but could not stand the shame. When he thought of Judy, his first reaction was fear. She would think he was damaged goods and break up with him, which is what he would have thought and done if she had jumped off a pier with a backpack loaded with used books she had bought at the Strand for the express purpose of sinking to the bottom of the East River. Then he remembered something he had heard somewhere and thought if Judy was the person he wanted to be with, his person, maybe it was okay she saw his weakness. Maybe it was important she saw it. He knew even if she didn't understand, she would come to take him home. It was Judy he called, and Judy who came. That's more or less it. Dean came into the living room, wearing sweatpants, and slumped down into the sofa. Except the part where I'm such a dumbass I couldn't drown myself. I thought if I aimed right for the rocks, it wouldn't matter how well I swam. Harry felt ill at ease and got up to lock the door for something to do. Judy went to sit by Dean on the sofa and waited for him to tell her the rest of what happened. What's the matter, Harry? Dean asked, agitated that he had left the room. I thought you said if you listened to everybody's story, the whole goddamn world would be right again. It's hard, Dean. That's the part I forgot. It's why we do everything we can to distract ourselves, and monks retreat into the woods, people who try to do it in the world get killed. I forgot that part about how it's like the hardest thing there is. Judy waited to hear if Dean would tell her the rest of what happened. Harry wondered if he should be there at all. Dean still didn't know whether he could tell them all he wanted to say, whether they would hear him if he did. Rakeen walked down Nostrand to wait for the off-hours bus that would take her to the subway, which would in turn ferry her to the edge of the island, where she would watch the swell of the Atlantic, threatening and failing, as it had for generation after generation, to swallow them whole.